0: Uh, so we're in, we're in uh, chapters 12 to 25 of Genesis at the moment, aren't we? And, and uh, I guess uh, discovering in these chapters what it looks like to live by faith in the tough realities of life. And, and as we're seeing, um, I guess, these, these chapters uh, about the life of Abraham, that they're a great place to be able to see that. Because although, although in one sense we live in a completely different time and place to him, actually in another sense we don't. Um, because his life, as, as well as our lives, are, are lived in, in the gap, as it were, between the promises of God in his word, promises that are fulfilled ultimately in the person and work of Jesus, and those promises being fully realized when, when the kingdom that he is building, and, and to which those promises point, um, is, is finally here. In, in other words, both Abraham and us live in the gap between the promise of God and the final reality of that promise, heaven. And it's tough, isn't it? It's tough to live by faith when we're not in heaven yet. Um, so we've seen the promise, of course, that threefold promise of people and land and blessing that, that God initially gave to Abram back at the, uh, at the beginning of chapter 12. And, and that uh, he has since been reiterating and, and expanding on uh, in, in the chapter since. But we've, we've also seen uh, how that is a gospel promise. It's a promise much bigger uh, than being simply about the, the people of Israel or the land of Canaan. Uh, but it's, it's actually the promise that the rest of the Bible unpacks and, and shows us its true, its final fulfillment through Christ. As, as God builds through him a people from every nation, Jew and Gentile, that, that he'll bring to a heavenly home, a new Jerusalem, to enjoy his blessing as we live under his gracious rule. But what we've also been seeing, of course, is that, is that what God promised to, to Abram, the promises of his word, Abram was called to respond to in trust and, and in obedience. God promised him people and, and land and blessing, but Abram had to go. He had to go to the land that God promised, which he did, of course. He, he obeyed what God said because he trusted what God promised. And, and this is what the life of faith is all about. It's about obeying what God says, his word, because we trust in what he promises. Now, of course, it hasn't all been plain sailing for Abram, has it? Sometimes he's failed to trust God. But when he did make a mess of trusting God, it didn't mean that God's promises were in tatters. You know, that that God would have to find a a new way to to bless the world and bring about rescue for for humanity. No, it didn't mean that because, as we've seen, the certainty of God's promises is not dependent on human performance, but but on God's promise and and God's character. And and so as we continue on in in these chapters, it's these issues of, of faith, of trusting God that are going to be kind of the big theme. If chapters 12 to 17 show us God's promises to put right what our sin has messed up, chapters 18 to 25 show us what trusting in God's promises really looks like. And now here, look, in chapter 18, we're also going to see this in chapter 19 as well. We're going to be challenged to trust in the God who is. In other words, the true God revealed in the Bible. Because, have you noticed... Um, Have you noticed how people like to make God in our image? Have you noticed that? Of course, the the Bible tells us, beginning part of uh, of, uh, Genesis in chapter 1, the Bible tells us that we are made in God's image. But we love to make God in our image, don't we? In other words, we we make up a God that is like us. You know, a God that suits us and, and how we want things to be. And, and how we want to live, a God who agrees with us, a God who conforms to our ideas, who, who likes what we like, who tolerates what we tolerate, who sees things the way we see them. That, that, that's an easy enough thing to demonstrate, actually, isn't it? Just by asking people what they believe about God. And, and the kind of answers that, that generally come back begin with phrases like, oh, I've always thought of God like this. Or, well, it seems to me that God is like this. Or, oh, well, the God I believe in would, would never do that, or it couldn't possibly be like this, and, and, and so on, do you see? In other words, they've got a picture of God who agrees with them. Now, of course, it might suit us to have uh, that kind of picture of God, but the big problem with it is that it's not necessarily a true picture of God. And and actually, therefore, when something terrible happens or something tragic happens, you know, either personally, like like the death of a loved one maybe, or uh, an illness in the family, or or when something happens more globally, like a pandemic (laughs) uh, or, or a natural disaster in the world, people struggle to understand how a God who agrees with us could ever allow such a thing to happen. Now, it needs to be said, of course, that the questions like, you know, where is God in this messed up world or what kind of a God would allow the world to be messed up the way it is, those are serious questions. They, they require serious, mature responses, of course. But I think it also needs to be said that biblical answers to those questions need to be heard in a mature and a serious way as well. And often when we ask such questions, we don't really want to hear the Bible's answers to them because they attack the kind of God that we've made up for ourselves. And, and they present us instead with this, the, the, the kind of a God uh, that he reveals himself to be. And that's often quite uncomfortable for us. But of course, the, the, the tragic result is that those biblical responses to how a just and a powerful and yet a merciful God could allow suffering, they, they, they will just remain unhurt. We, we just won't understand the character of God as an awesome and holy and righteous judge and yet a personal and merciful rescuer. You know, the the plan and the mind and the character of God will be lost on us if we just make up a God who's acceptable to us instead of listening to the God who is. And, And friends, it's tragic enough that there is so much suffering in the world, but surely it's more tragic still that in that suffering we fail to see the true God. And so we we end up entering eternity on the wrong side of his justice. And I think, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, that's exactly what's happening here. In in these two uh, sobering, quite uh, hard chapters, often misunderstood chapters, dealing with the the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Um, chapters which we won't grasp if we come to them with a picture of God that is made in our image instead of coming to the true God who makes us in his image and reveals himself to us as he really is and that's what we see in these chapters especially we'll see it next time in in chapter 19 we see not the God that that we might have made up to suit us but we see the real God who has revealed himself to us in the Bible the God who is and and our task is is not to change him into a God made in our image, but it's rather to change our minds to conform to who he really is. So there are three scenes in the chapter, I've called them the visit, the disclosure, and the pleading, through which we learn about God's plan, God's mind, and God's Character. So have a look at scene one with me. This is kind of verses one to 15. I, I've called it the visit where we... Unimaginative, I know. But, but where we see God's plan. So have a, have a look at verse one. Uh, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So so Abram sat by the, the door of his tent, and when he looks up, there's, there's three men standing in front of him. He, he doesn't appear to have heard them approaching, he just sees them when they're already close by. But the narrator tells us, notice, what Abraham doesn't know yet, which is that this is an appearing of the Lord. Verse one. Notice the, the capital letters there. When you see that word Lord in, in capitals in an, in an English Bible, it, it's referring to, to Yahweh, to, to the God who has already revealed himself to, to Abram back in chapter 12, the God who made those promises to him. Now, of course, these are, these are ultimately uh, global gospel promises, of course. They're, they're finally fully revealed through Christ. But back here in Genesis, of course, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're in fact still waiting for stage one of that promise to be realized, aren't they? Because stage one requires God to do what he promised and to make Abraham the father of a nation. However, the problem is that they, they don't even have any children. Sarah has been unable to conceive. And, and as we pick up the story in chapter eighteen, it's looking impossible for that to happen now because Abraham's about a hundred years old, uh, Sarah is is ninety or so, and, and so thoughts of having children are, are long gone. But then, out of the blue, they get a they get a visit, and although we don't know who at least one of them, is uh, although we know who one of them is, Abraham doesn't. But he does seem to think that they're important visitors, doesn't he? Because he he runs to greet them. Did you notice that's not bad for a 100 year old guy, is it? I hope I'm still, well, I probably won't be alive by the time I'm 100, let alone still running around. But he does. He runs to greet them, bows down to the ground in front of them, and and then offers them extremely generous hospitality, doesn't he? Even by Middle Eastern standards, he kind of must drag Sarah out of her rocking chair or something, and she makes a shed load of bread, three seers of flour, versus six. That's, That's about six gallons or something like that. That's a huge amount. Of bread, And then he runs, notice, to his herd. He, he gets a whole calf uh, killed and prepared. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't coffee in a hobnob, is it? This is, this is serious hospitality going on here. Um, now, you know, Middle Eastern hospitality of the time, it was very generous. So, so much of this, you know, washing their feet, giving them shade, baking them bread and so on, that wasn't untypical at all. But, you know, even, even by these standards, a whole calf... You know, gallons of bread. Abraham does seem to be offering them hospitality fit for a king, doesn't he? Uh, indeed, fit for someone that we know is there, uh, even though he doesn't. Kind of reminded me about the privilege of uh, of hospitality. You know, that as the, the writer to Hebrews says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for some, uh, for thereby some have entertained angels. Unawares, um, a voice, a, a, a verse that, that seems to be recalling this incident here. I think in Genesis eighteen, and making the point that by by showing hospitality, we you know we might be reaping a greater blessing than we sow. Something that is certainly the case here for for Abraham, and definitely be my experience as well with with hospitality as well. It's a lovely scene, though, isn't it? You know, a, a scene of God Himself in, in some form, sitting and eating. With Abraham, sharing a meal with him, you know, a sign of friendship, a personal occasion, an intimate occasion. Um, and as the, as the food slides down, um, so the conversation starts, and, and gradually these three men reveal to Abraham who they are. And, and it all starts with a question, look, in verse 9. Where is Sarah, your wife? They've not met his wife. She's been busy preparing food for the meal, um, yet they know her name. You know, hinting maybe these are no ordinary visitors he he replies, verse nine, she's there in the tent to which one of the visitors again identified there as the Lord, says in verse ten, "I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son, which is quite a thing to say to a ninety year old woman, isn't it uh, but again it's it's a hint that these are not your, your average kind of visitors. And of course, Sarah, who could overhear the conversation from inside the tent, she reacts as you might expect. You know, she's, she's old and advanced in years. Uh, verse 11, the way of women has ceased to be with her. In other words, she's kind of truly post-menopausal. Um, and so she laughs to herself, verse 12, at the very thought of it. It's totally ridiculous. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, both of them are so old now, she's, she's long ago given up hope of even conceiving, let alone giving birth. You know, The idea just seems you know, beyond even hoping for. But, but then again, look, in, in verse 13, uh, we read, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh uh, and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord, for, for Yahweh? For the God of the Bible, the God who promised you a people. So whilst Sarah's laughter to us, I guess, is is entirely understandable, uh, we're starting to see something of the reason for the visit, aren't we? And and the challenge for them both here in, in verse 14 is, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And as if to confirm that that Abraham is indeed in the presence of the all-knowing God, he is gently insistent that he knows every secret. Did you you spot that in verse 15? Sarah's afraid, and so she denies that she laughed to herself. But the Lord knows. No, but you did laugh. See, he he knows her, her innermost secrets, her laughing to herself. So do you see what this tells us about what God is like? You know, It's it's very popular these days, isn't it, when we invent God in our image for us to invent him as an impersonal God. That's very popular. A God who just kind of winds up the world like a clock and, and then leaves it to tick by itself. A God who has no interest or takes no part in the world. But notice here, the real God, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, is a personal God. You know, God who's involved in the world, a God who desires relationship and fellowship with those that he's made. That's what we see here, isn't it? And of course, later on, of course, as as, as God's great unfolding plan moves on into the New Testament, uh, we see that that, that God doesn't just come and eat a meal, but he comes and dwells with his people in in the person of Jesus, his divine son, our, our rescuer. And then, of course... It becomes even, even clearer that God is personal, doesn't he? That he, he comes among us. That he, he eats with sinners. He invites us to trust him. And, and by doing so, become part of, of his plan to put right what our sin has messed up. He's a personal God. And, and you see here, he, he, he announces to Abram the birth of a son. So that Abram can see he's keeping his plan on track. He's trustworthy. He's faithful to his promises. But then, look, as, as we move on in, in verses sort of 16 to 19, you get the second scene here. I've, I've called it the disclosure. And, and, and if scene one gives us a glimpse of God's plan, scene two gives us a glimpse of God's mind. And, and as you pick up the story, look, in verse 16, it appears that Abraham, he's, he's got a tent with a view. Because as the men prepare to leave, and Abram's walking along with them, they're able to look down across the Jordan Valley toward the city of Sodom. Now, uh, mention of the city of Sodom is preparing us for what we're going to read in in chapter 19. So what do you think these men are seeing as they look across the Jordan Valley to, to the city of Sodom? Because, of course, one thing they're going to be looking at is a kind of a lush and fertile valley, isn't it? Do you remember back in chapter 13 when Lot, Abram's nephew, first clamped his eyes on that valley? Do you remember? Here's what he saw, chapter 13, verse 10. Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. And so what did he do? Chapter 13, verse 11. God chose, uh, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east and thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, if you know what's coming up in chapter 19, you've probably got an image of the cities of Sodom and, and Gomorrah uh, and what they were like. But remember what Lot saw when, when he looked towards them the first time was, was beauty, was, was lush soil, was desirable places to live. You know, places that were set in Garden of Eden type surroundings, you know, places that the, the holiday brochures, the travel companies, were they put on the front cover, you know, pl- places where the... The Hilton and the Marriott would, would build the finest resort hotels. Places where uh, celebrity chefs would come and build the best restaurants. You know, the, In other words, these are, these are happening places. Places with light, nightlife. Places that are, are buzzing with loads of distractions for, for pleasure-seeking individuals to have a good time. Like a, like a hedonist's paradise. But of course, what the brochures and the travel guides wouldn't say is what the narrator of Genesis says, chapter 13, verse 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot may have been captivated by the beauty of the the surroundings, the many pleasures on offer. that That might be what he saw when he looked down the valley the first time. But it's not what the Lord sees here, is it? He looks at the city and he sees great sin against the Lord. You know, I'm I'm sure, actually, friends, he sees many cities and towns today as well uh, in the same way because he's not dazzled by the bright lights, is he, like we are. So look, back now in chapter 18, uh, uh, let's see what concerns the Lord as he looks down the Jordan Valley towards Sodom. Verse, Verse 17, he says to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So he's kind, of, he's kind of debating with himself here, isn't he? Whether to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do or, or not. Have a careful look at, at verse 17 there. Do you see that kind of internal debate that's going on with himself there? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because generally speaking, God doesn't tell, his, God doesn't tell people in advance what he's going to do, does he? But he's making a rare exception in this case for a specific reason. And it's because, verse 18, he's made Abraham this promise. In other words, God's chosen Abraham to play a a very special part in his unfolding plan for the world. It's it's through Abraham and and his offspring, verse 18, that that God's plan to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth is, is going to be brought about. So, how is it going to be brought about? It's going to be brought about by grace. Look, that's the first thing. He's not making Abraham a part of his plan because Abraham is someone special no it's it's simply because he's chosen him. Do you see that verse 19? For I have chosen him. It's just because of God's grace and God's grace isn't the the only way that God's plan starts. Uh, or it's not, it's not only the way that God's plan starts, it's the way that his plan is completed as well. End of verse 19. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So, so God's plan isn't in doubt here. There's, there's no uncertainty about God's plan. The Lord is going to do it from start to finish. It's a plan of his grace. But it's also a plan, look, that God will achieve through Abraham. Abraham's not just a spectator in God's plan, is he? He's a participant in it. Verse 18. He's to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Do you see? God is going to bring about his plan. He's going to do it, but he's working through Abraham as Abraham and his descendants after him know the way of the Lord and then keep it. In other words, it's God's plan, he will do it, but Abram has a part to play in in teaching his descendants to, to know and to keep God's ways so that the promise, the plan, is fulfilled. And that's why God is going to disclose to Abraham what he's planning to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Because, as we'll see, God is going to destroy those cities, he's going to wipe them out. He's going to act in judgment on them and he's going to disclose to Abraham what he's about to do so that Abraham will understand God's mind and so be able to teach his descendants, those who come after him, To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised. Did you see? And I wonder if you can see the application for us here, friends. When we look in in detail at chapter 19 the next time, we're going to read a deeply shocking chapter about God's judgment. And God is disclosing to Abraham what he's about to do because he wants it to be an object lesson to him and to all who come after him, including us, as his people today. In other words, we today who believe in the promises of God, we need to know and take on board the reality of the judgment of God God is disclosing to Abraham what he's going to do because Abraham and all God's people need to know and and grasp and trust in this God, the God who judges, if we are to go his way and so benefit from the fulfillment of his promises. Does that make sense? And friends, we need to know this because the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah we'll read about it next time, is used throughout the rest of the Bible as a kind of prototype, an example of how God deals with sin and how he will deal with sin in the final judgment that is yet to come. Uh, Here's an example of that Look from the book of Jude in, in the New Testament where the writer says, uh, verse 7, he's talking about both uh, uh, Israelites and angels, actually, who have been unfaithful to God. He says that they will be kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Do you see, you see the point? We today need to take what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah very seriously because it's recorded for us here so that God's people from Abraham to us and beyond would understand what the true God is like, what his mind is in, in relation to, to human evil and, and his judgment of it so that we will believe and trust in this God and not some other God that we've made up for ourselves because it suits us. Because if we do that, we we risk entering eternity, believing in the wrong God, and so end up on the wrong side of his justice. So uh, have a look at the final scene with me, Um, very briefly, because it, it shows us Abram's response to God's disclosure. There's the disclosure. Here's Abram's response in in verses 20 to 33. I've called it the pleading, where we we see God's character. So so, uh, verse 20, the grave sin of Sodom has come to God's attention, verse 20. So he's going to go down and see for himself what it's like, verse 21. And if it isn't grave sin, I will know. In other words, God is not going to act in judgment on Sodom w- without personally knowing Himself the wrongs that are going on there. God, God isn't arbitrary. Right? He, he doesn't judge unfairly, He doesn't judge out of ignorance. He, he judges based on first hand knowledge. He knows. In, in other words, He knows everything about your life and mine. He, you know, he knows every secret, He knows every lie. He knows every greedy thought. He knows every selfish action. He knows every lustful look. He knows. He knows it all. And verse 20, it goes up as an outcry to him. That's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? And he's seen what's going on in Sodom too. It's been coming up to him as an outcry for years. And now, finally, enough is enough... And in his justice, he will act in judgment on the evil that he sees there. And Abram knows that God will do this. He knows that his justice demands that he does it. And yet he also knows that there are righteous people in Sodom. And so he intercedes with God on behalf of the righteous people in the city. So understand here, he's not asking God to spare the wicked. He's pleading with God not to sweep away the righteous with the wicked, verse 23. God, surely you won't sweep away even 50 righteous people in in your judgment of the wicked, will you? Surely, God, you you wouldn't do that. Well, what about 45 people then, or 40, or 30, or 20, or 10, do do you see? He's pleading with God not to sweep away the righteous with the wicked, no matter how few of them there may be. And he does it in a very humble way way doesn't he oh lord forgive me for asking again you know but what if it's only 10 people would you still spare just 10 he also does it in a very bold way verse 25 far be it from you lord to sweep away the righteous with the wicked in other words that's not what you're like lord shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just do you see he's he's pleading humbly but he's he's also able to plead boldly because he knows the character of god He knows that God is just and so will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And so he appeals to God's justice, the justice he knows is there. And not only does he plead with God in kind of humble and bold way, but I think in a realistic way as well. Do you notice how he starts with 50, but then he keeps decreasing the amount? I I think he he does that because he knows there probably aren't 50 righteous people in the whole city. He he knows his nephew Lot and his, his family are there. But he keeps pleading with God on the basis of fewer and fewer people, doesn't he? Because he knows just exactly how few righteous people there are there. Which just kind of highlights for us, doesn't it, the total guilt of the city. Such that if there are people there to be saved and not judged, well, it's not going to be because they've somehow satisfied the justice of God, <laughs> no. But actually rather because they've trusted themselves to the mercy of God. And, friends, this is why it's so important that we understand the justice and the judgment of God that we see modeled for us in these two chapters. Uh, We'll especially see it next time in, in chapter 19. It's so important because we will never understand the grace and the mercy of God unless we also understand the justice of God and his right to be angry at our sin. And to judge us justly for it. We need to see, friends, that God hates evil. That he is right to do so. And to act against it. For no just God could could do otherwise. So, friends, as we unpack this chapter, it, it speaks to us, doesn't it, of what the real God is like. So that we will see our great need of his gospel. It's very easy for people, Christians included, to struggle with the God of justice and judgment that we see in passages like this. It's tough. I know it is. In fact, we'll see next time how Lot's sons, in chapter 19, thought the whole idea of God judging was just a joke. And friends, if that's us this morning, we will never understand the God who made and rules our world. We'll never understand why he has committed himself to send his son to face our judgment in his place, in our place. We'll never understand why he proved himself on the cross more willing to face his judgment himself than to let us bear it ourselves. Do you see? We'll we'll never get why rescue was the only answer. We'll never understand God's grace and God's mercy if we don't understand his justice and his judgment. Which means, friends, that that we need to know and to understand and to place our trust in this God. Not the God that we make up in our own image, but the God who made us in his image. Not the God whose plan and mind and and character is one that we've invented to suit ourselves. A God who, who loves what we love and tolerates what we tolerate and believes what we believe. But the real God. The real God who is personal. And who has revealed himself to us in his word. The real God who is faithful to his promises and will bring about his unfolding plan to put right what our sin has messed up. The real God who is holy and just and knows our sin and, friends, will hold us accountable for it. But the real God who is merciful and gracious and has provided through the death and the resurrection of his own son, a way to face that justice himself so that he can rescue those who will trust in him. This is the God that we need to know and trust, friends. This is the God to whom we must come. Four, verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do What is just? Yes, he will. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, these are sobering verses. Um, They're verses that that challenge us to uh, throw aside the false gods that we make up to suit ourselves. Challenge us to do business with the true and the living God. A God who is both personal and faithful, both just and merciful. A God who will judge, but a God who offers rescue. So Father, please help us to know and to trust in you, the God who is. And, and so to enter eternity on the right side of your justice. This we pray for your glory, and in Jesus' name. Amen.